and welcome to the Conscious Diva podcast. I'm Tatiana Wright. Joining me today is Yolanda Shoshana. Shoshi, as she is known, is a witch, a culinary historian, gastronomy influencer, wine and spirit expert, and an alchemist helping people live life through their senses. Welcome, Shoshi. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you have an absolutely awesome bio. It's not like anyone else's, and I love it. I love that the first word is witch. So tell me about that. Yes. So I've always been spiritual, grew up in a spiritual home, and I'll have to long story short some of this. I have always had witchy ways, but I don't know if I had defined them as such. And I'd always gone on spiritual retreats and uh, been a part of spirituality. I almost became a rabbi, actually. I don't even know if you know that about Oh, me. yeah. I think when we <laughs> first met years ago, that yes. I actually thought that's what you were doing. I was going to do that, and then I just didn't want to go to rabbinical school. It was a little bit of racism in rabbinical school. That's a whole other conversation. So I uh, just stayed on the spiritual path and then became a life coach for a bit. And that didn't work for me. Everybody was a life coach, but I kind of wasn't fully there. And I realized as my psychic stuff started really kicking in, I wanted to be more honest and true about being a psychic and being witchy. Mm-hmm. and going to cemeteries and talking to the dead and, you know, coming up with potions and making products. So I kind of just outed myself as a witch, uh, kind of right before it became trendy. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's been fun. It's, it's a great lifestyle. So how did you bridge your, your witchy or witchcraft with wine? Well, for me, I... Um, I was going to lots of events and I just, I had like an aha moment one night when I was sipping something that probably wasn't so great because some of the events don't have the best wine. Uh, (laughs) I mean, they just give you whatever. They're donated. That's right. I know. (laughs) They just give you whatever. And then um, I said, you know, I just, I want to write more about wine. So I just decided to put up a, a separate blog called Witch on Wine. And I thought, well, let me see how this goes. And I was like, okay. And I just started learning more and getting more involved. And then I got invited to a few wine events. So the wine was better. And it just really took off. And I was wondering if the witch thing would hurt me. And it ended up being like the best cool thing. It makes me a little more unique than some of the other wine people. And winemakers love it. They love talking to me about nature and picking their grapes at night. It's just fun. <laughs> I really enjoy the whole witch thing with magic well, but, in the bottle. I think wine is magic in the bottle. And there's definitely an aspect of, um, you know, the harvesting on a full moon, right? The biodynamic yeah. world is all about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, they are. Yes, yeah, they are. But it's also apparently cooler. So uh, a lot of people have their workers do it at night, too which makes sense because everybody's sweating. And uh, so some, of, some people just enjoy having their staff to pick at night. It's really cool. And, you know, when, when I first asked you to come on, you know, the conversation we're going to have today is going to be uh, around uh, racism in the culinary world or history of, through food and, and alcohol. But I wanted you to just explain a little bit about um, your, your witchiness because it's integral to all of it. And so I'd love to just have you expand on living life through your senses before we jump into the crux of the interview. Absolutely. So for me, it's a little bit of everything. It's food, definitely food, because I I would classify myself as a kitchen witch as well, because 
lots of things in the kitchen are very magical. It's also things that you taste, which would be, uh, of course, the food, and then the wine and the spirits, which is also a part of smell. And then music, bringing that music in. I make playlists to wine and spirits. And things that you're going to do, it's just everything that gets your body and your senses going so that you have a full experience in life. And that's kind of witchy and magical in lots of ways. Mm, yeah, I love that. You're, you're really... Um experiencing the flow of life in all aspects mm. yeah it's mm, beautiful yeah. i think it's interesting how a lot of people say they can't cook or they don't like certain alcohols but i think there's there's a pleasure and there's definitely aspects that we can embrace in all of that and anybody when you channel your creativity into something magic happens mm-hmm. absolutely as you know we're living in these crazy times right and a lot is being exposed currently and when we were talking the other day, uh, over the last several weeks, many brands, big brands, food brands in the United States have been altering their very specific imagery, mainly Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's. And I don't think a lot of people, perhaps even people living outside of the United States, I know it's not everybody, not, not everyone's familiar with the story of Aunt Jemima. So I, I would love for you to share where this came from, because although the woman on the packaging is a picture of somebody, that was a real woman. That was a real illustration or a photograph, I think, taken on the turn of the, the century, the 20th century. But Aunt Jemima per se was not an actual, like her name wasn't Jemima. No, 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 no. So there was a company that wanted to sell their pancakes. And uh, they hired this woman of color, black woman, Mm-hmm. to stand behind uh, the stand and she did so well that's kind of where the whole aunt jemima thing the whole mammy thing came from so she had on the cloth on the head and she was overweight and she looked like she could cook so uh the pancakes kept selling out and selling out so then they offered her a contract to go around the country making these pancakes and that's how it became known as Aunt Jemima. But the interesting part of that, the bigger piece of it is, is that there's a part of the mammy culture that is what Aunt Jemima grasped onto and it's overweight women taking care of white people. Yeah. And that's really why Aunt Jemima was, is so uh, racially uh, triggering for certain people. And a lot of even black people didn't even know this story until now. So it's not like everybody knew I happened to go to a one-woman show downtown in on the Lower East Side, and she, it was called the Mammy Project, and she put Aunt Jemima in the show. Wow. And that's how I found out about it, yeah. As you know, I used to produce food shows for the Food Network, and so a lot of the things that we, I would have to research as a producer, the histo- historical information for things, and I remember that it was actually, it was an advertising agency, I think, that, that created this campaign for uh, a, a company, and, and it was a World's Fair exhibition. As you said, they gave her a contract and they fashioned her into this image of this Aunt Jemima. And apparently they sold something like 20,000 packets mm-hmm. of pancake mm-hmm. mix at that during that World's Fair exhibition. And, yeah. and then, yeah, as you said, they went on the road. And, um, and then later on, uh, as decades went along, there was a, another, I think that was an illustration and they ended up taking a photo. There was another woman who, who played, because this was a role, who played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original family of the first woman has never gotten any of the money or the residuals from anything. Mm. And that's also, they've been fighting for that for years. Yeah, they've made Aunt Jemima a little more modern, as one can see, but it's still like, come on. 
<laughs> What's interesting about the whole brand, that whole product is it, it's got a fake story. It's, it's fake syrup, sort of made from maples, maple trees, right? Maple syrup. And <laughs> it's an instant packet of, you know, you, all you do is add water to this, this powder and make pancakes. Yeah. So it's interesting yeah. how the whole thing is fake. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I don't think many people have actually thought of that outside of its offensive yeah. um, messaging, you know. Oh, it is. It is. It's very, the whole mammy thing is a whole triggering, a whole other show. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. Explain what does that even mean, the mammy? Well, the mammy comes up, comes actually from slavery when uh, black women were taking care of white children and actually uh, breastfeeding them. And it became this whole like mammy, a mother, because you don't call them mother. So it became, became this whole thing. And most of the time, a lot of these women were, some of the women were overweight. So it's overweight women taking care of white families. And um, this, this caricature has stayed with us for so long. If you look in old, the old blackface movies, it's like many, it's always talking about this person and these women. And it's like, there's more to black women than that. And it's definitely objectifying in this very weird way. Uh, I mean, it's even, it's even so deep as to talk about when people hire black maids to take care of their white children and them looking a particular way, which has oh. stayed with us. No, thank you for, tell, for reminding us because I I, there's so many words and we'll get to antebellum um, in, in a little bit during mm. this interview, but that's also another word that, I, that people will definitely need reminding of where that comes from and its connections. This brings me back to this, um, when we were talking the other day of the culinary story of the United States, how a lot of things yeah. came from the South where the slaves were first brought and a lot of Americans don't even realize that the food they eat today is based on slaves cooking it. And if you research the information, I'm talking about recipes, menus, things like this, a lot of the, the white woman of the house, right, was the one who was given credit for creating the menu. The recipes came from a log book where it was written down as a receipt book, right? You wrote down in your receipt book what you bought, what was in the kitchen, all the things, but they wrote down their recipes in their receipt book. So I guess the question I want to ask you, what is the importance of understanding our culinary history? Oh, wow. The importance of understanding our culinary history. That's, that's deep. It's like so that you know where it comes from and that you give people credit where credit is due. So that it's not like, oh, this white woman created the first this when it was actually this fabulous black woman who made it for a family. It's um, so that it erases some of that racism that's been part of this. Because when you don't give people that actually created something the credit, it's just it's erasing their history. And it's like, we weren't a part of it, which isn't true. And uh -huh. slaves, slaves that came back or what were actually that were brought here had to things that they could not find. That's why they were creating these things. And it was new to them too, though. Like some of the spices that they had in Africa weren't here. So they're like, well, what can we do instead? So that's what I think is so amazing about the history of it. It's like, okay, we had to improvise. But we improvised and it's so delicious what we created. I mean, I just think it's amazing. So, uh, but you're right about women giving credit when they shouldn't have. The, the best example of that is the help when she hired the black maid to go and she was cooking and then her husband was like, I knew that wasn't her from the beginning. And that's why it was so funny to us. It's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the enslaved cooks really brought um, amazingly unique flavors, right? They added things that were available that were growing in the South, peppers, peanuts, 
other greens, maybe okra, things like this. And then they were adding them and adapted, adapting them to their traditional West African stews, things like jambalaya. Most people probably don't even realize it's a cousin of jollof rice, you know, um, which is a really heavily seasoned rice dish with vegetables and meat. And then other, you know, there's, there's so many things, right? There's gumbo. <laughs> Oh, yeah. There's so, so many things that were, com- that were coming up. Oh, and, and a lot of these are inspired by African dishes. Absolutely. That's why I think, I think Louisiana's got some very interesting uh, culinary history for sure, with a lot of that stuff still mixed in, and even with all their racial issues. Uh, so the whole thing is just, I, I love, though, that we're at a time where we're starting to talk a little bit more about where the food has come from, and people are writing books and whether they're switching recipes around or making them more modern, but talking about the history of where they came from. I think it's just really important to know where food comes from and where those recipes came from. It's also fun. It's exciting to know about these things. Yeah, because uh, uh, most people have to remember that these were white English descendants that were living here, yeah. right? And they were cooking stodgy white English yeah. food. They weren't creative. There wasn't any color or spice in it. It was just the stodgy, like potato-y kind of stuff that, that was prominent back then, you know, a few hundred years ago. Uh, So I I think when you, when we go back and look at it, there's definitely, there should be an amazing food documentary that comes out and really tracks this and talk. I would love to see, I would love to make that food documentary actually. Do it. That would be amazing. Please do. Let's let's go on the road and make this documentary. That would be so much fun. Oh, there's so many amazing stories and people that have been buried and covered up and just the tracks of where all these things came from. You know, I think a lot of white people who love the Southern food, especially down in the South, white people in the South would be shocked to learn oh, yeah. the history of where their favorite foods come from. Oh yeah, shocked or, or some of them will be shocked, but some of them just may not still want to know just yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not ready. Yeah. Some of them aren't ready. <laughs> not ready. Well, now's the time. Well, but talking uh, about the South, um, obviously we need to talk about antebellum. Can you talk about this word, what it means, what its connotations well, it, are? It's a racist word that, dates back to slavery. It's so funny though, like I looked it up recently and it's really about the group, but there's a movie coming out called Antebellum which, uh, that stars J- uh, Janae Monell, which mm. I think will be interesting and I believe it's about slavery. Because huh. when you look it up, it's a, you look up uh, Antebellum slavery or if you keep going deeper into it, you'll see the images of slavery because it definitely was a slavery term. Uh, they were known for their slavery and having their house men and women and, um, and they just reveled in it. It was their thing. They just enjoyed it so much. And some of the Southern cookbooks talk about the antebellum part of it. And they talk about their house girls or and maybe using even more derogatory terms, if you know what I mean, the N-word, um, yeah. some of them. So they just, it just was a, a huge thing, the antebellum South, what it was known as. Huge. Does it refer to, it's the, the plantation era, right? Yeah, the, say the antebellum era. era, plantation era. And mm-hmm. um, you had just told me that there was a, a cocktail that had been named that yeah. antebellum. I get sent cocktail recipes often, uh, especially around the derby time. Uh, a, lot, a lot of it's bourbon. And I had a recipe sent to me that was called the antebellum. It was an antebellum julep. And I was like, ooh, I, I got a little like, I don't think I want to post that. I don't, ooh, that feels weird. So I just, I finally just emailed back the PR firm and I told them what it was. 
And then I got a lovely email back like, oh, sorry, we didn't do that. Our bartender did that. <laughs> and we didn't know, blah, blah, blah. And then they sent it back to me and they took off the word antebellum. I didn't see it on any of the other stuff that they sent out, which I thought was great. But some of the bourbon cocktails have been a little racist. Some of the titles of them. Because bourbon has a very um, racist history. <laughs> yeah, talk about that. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, well, I think Jack Daniels has actually finally been one of the first to be like, hey, a slave actually helped us make our whole juice. And they've been very out about that. And it's been great. And they've been doing that for a while, though. This isn't new. Uh, but a lot of the slaves helped to make the bourbon. And uh, the person that worked in Jack Daniels, and I'm not going to remember his name, uh, he's the one who came up with the formula for what was in there, talking about adding the spices and adding everything. That was his idea. There's a new bourbon called Uncle Neris, uh, named after a slave as well. And uh, he was one of the first people to do that as well in um, Tennessee. And that's a new bourbon and it's owned by, by African-Americans. That's a new one talking about our history with making bourbon. So mm -hmm. bourbon is wrestling and a lot of them have not made any statements. And I just saw today my friend who does part time stories Angel's Envy is one of the only bourbons to come out and say that they believe in Black Lives Matter and they are not about the racism and they've gotten a little heat for it. So, but I'm glad that some of them are doing it. So that was, that was big because Angel's Envy is not a small brand. They're big. And then you had also told me that there are some racist wine labels too. And, and do you think people are just naming them without, they're clearly not doing any research on well, what the name means. Right, right. Like people just aren't um, paying attention to what, words mean or they those words don't mean that anything to them the same way that it, they may mean to us it's like uh so and using bottles like 40 ounces that are triggering for possibly the african-american community when we were given 40 ounces to destruct our community uh, with the malt liquor so mm -hmm. people just aren't paying attention and there's no way for them to know i mean some of these are white men creating these things it, it doesn't mean the same thing to them they yeah. just don't know about the history of it but now they're learning. <laughs> they're starting to learn because people are calling them out. And uh, a lot's been happening in the last few weeks, even at the, the food. The a lot. And my friend who works at Thrillist, who finally was very open about her experience at Thrillist, being the food editor, and how difficult it was for her and how they let her go on Zoom. Like she said, it was quick. And I, this is in her article. And it oh. just was harsh. And they... Yeah, and she was really trying to bring more writers of color into it. Nicole Taylor, she's fabulous. She was so excited when she got the job. And she wanted to bring in more writers of color. She was having writers of color come in, even to do meetings with her. But it was just so hard for her. And that's what her whole piece is about, how now she feels so free. And um, how difficult. Yeah. Interesting. But we have to write. We got to let people know. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this all unfolds. And now that there are fewer writing, writing jobs, I don't know what that means for us. I mean, it's great that we're letting people know, but it's going to be interesting to see who still has the power after it all, kind of, all, after the smoke clears. Yeah, well, hopefully, I don't think the smoke's going to clear for a while. I agree with you. <laughs> a lot more that has to come up. A lot more has yeah. to be, right? There's so much more. Yeah. And yeah. you had said that it's, it's actually quite difficult for African-Americans or Africans in general to produce wine. Why, yeah, I mean, why is that? Money. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, 
you got to have the capital to have your vineyard. You got to have the capital and you got to have the support to have your vineyard because it's really a lot of it's money. And that's a lot of the reasons why a lot of people of color have not been able to enter certain fields. Trying to be a sommelier, sommelier is not cheap. Yeah. Uh, trying to be a master sommelier is not cheap. That's even more expensive. So capital is very uh, big. And I mean, even white people these days can't even afford to have their own wineries. A lot of people are partnering and getting their juice from other places which is what a lot of celebrities have done, which is like the Mary J. Blige coming out with her wine. I'm excited uh, about that. And we'll see if it becomes easier now that people know. Maybe people can partner up with powerful brands to create their own wines. Maybe uh, more of us will get in the importing and exporting because that's important to a winemaker as well because you've got to have somebody to ship your wine for you. That too. Yeah. So if you're too small, they're not going to want to deal with you. It's just a lot. There's so many logistics in wine, and there's very few people making wine. More and more people are trying, but uh, it's it's a hard process. Yeah, I think, um, as we had discussed, a lot of people don't realize that the, the yield is yeah. several years away from when you first uh, mm -hmm. take over. You almost have to buy a fully functioning winery that's already got mm -hmm. grapes that are mature that you can harvest from and then there's like that whole maturation period of not just when the grapes are growing and being able to be picked harvested but then they have to be made like actually crushed and you know and and then there's several years after that from that, that harvest where they have to mature right and yep. so there's a lot of upfront um that goes into that upfront resources but you had also shared a really beautiful story uh about the mcbride sisters can you tell that story here yeah, so the McBride sisters are these really great, amazing women. Uh, they're both located in California. And they're black. They're black. They're beautiful black, mocha-colored sisters. Um, <laughs> and they didn't know about each other. And they found out about each other when their father was dying. And, um, and one of them is from New Zealand, and the other one grew up in California. So they just were on different parts of the world. And it was a family member that brought them together that says, we need to talk. So they got on the phone, they started talking, and then they discovered they, they had things in common, and one of them was their love for wine. And then they finally met in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, because I've, I've, I've been in the same room with them when they told this story. They met, and it just felt like they had known each other for years, and they decided to create uh, the wines. They're known as the McBride Sisters. That was their first label, and now they're doing more like Black Girl Magic, uh, a Black girl magic they have a red or riesling and i still think they they still do things under the mcbride sisters but that's how you find them and they're just so great to be around they're just lovely they know how to party <laughs> they have a good time and they're beautiful so inspiring so i wanted to ask you from the beginning actually i wanted to ask you this the other day what's a trans medium a trans medium is somebody who has like all the gifts to see to hear everything. I can talk to dead people. Um, I, and you don't necessarily need to be in the same room with anybody else. So uh, I got the feelings. I can see words. I can see pretty much everything, even when I don't want to. <laughs> and uh, do they ever say, gosh, I miss drinking that, that wine? Do I ever talk to you about alcohol? Have you ever, has anyone living or dead spoken to you about wine? I'm sure a lot of living people, but have, have any of this when you're communing, have, just was curious. That's interesting that you say that. Not yet, but the interesting thing is I am writing a solo show called The Wine Monologues, and I've been 
adding some ghosts into it, like the ghosts of people that are past. So they might. I may end up having those conversations now. <laughs> uh, we'll see what comes out of it all. Well, and also when you travel, when you because you've been invited by major alcohol producers, not just wine producers, but people like Hennessy and Dom Perignon and uh, companies like this who've, who've invited you overseas to their their place, their um, well, they're not all wineries, but uh, where they're growing. And mm -hmm. um, when you walk through. Do you feel, can you, are you, when you write about wine, are you, because of your abilities, your clairvoyant abilities, are you able then to tap more into what's happening in that area, the stories from, because a lot of those are in chateaus in Italy and in France, <laughs> and these amazing, beautiful old, centuries old uh, locations where they've been producing wines for a lot, whatever their alcohol is for a long time. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it always is so interesting for me. There are times when I will, uh, the trip, sometimes we end up in small cities. And then I'll start feeling like, wow, why am I so attracted to this place? And then it'll be like, I'll go look up the history and it's like, oh, there were tons of witches in this city. Mm. And because a lot of times it's, we go from little town to town and that's really interesting. But I definitely think I bring that to the table. I always tell people that it's going to take me a little bit to write the story because after I get home, I do more of a, I digest what happened to me spiritually when I was there. Oh. versus just about the wine. I, I mix it up, but I just need a little time to, to detach what, what was me and what was that. So uh, I like to, I definitely get into the spirituality of it all. I like to walk around by myself most times. I try to at least go to one church when I'm someplace to go and kind of talk to whatever spirit or church or a synagogue, whatever the holy thing is. Uh, but going to the old churches is so moving a lot of times when I'm in these small towns. And even going to the, the little chapels with the wineries, a lot of them still have their chapels in place. Mm. And that's always interesting. It's just, I go normally by myself, because most people aren't seeking that out, but I am. So uh, I go and I sit in there for a little bit and try to see who has anything to say, if anybody has anything to say. It's nice. But the vines are always talking too. Going on a vineyard, vines are always talking to you. Well, to me, they always talk to you. Yeah, and and what do they say when they when they whisper to you? Um, sometimes I hear the voices of some of the women who are out there and and talking about the love of the vine. Uh, sometimes it's just like I feel like all the energy and the past that comes up when somebody's like telling the story of their great grandfather or their grandfather, and I'm like, yes, and I I totally feel that person's energy still there. It's just really moving sometimes. Sometimes it's like, it can even move me to tears a lot of mm. times. And have you had a similar experience like that? If you, and I don't know if you've actually done this, gone down to the South, not where they're making wine, but where slaves and plantations were working and growing food. Have you, have you done that and had that experience? No, I have not. I have not done that. I would say though, no, I haven't done that. Um, I mean, the only thing that comes, comes close, but it wasn't about food or anything. I was invited on a press trip to Ohio and they have a slavery museum in um, Cincinnati. Oh. And if you can see the bridge to uh, Kentucky and they said, if you, cross that, if you cross the bridge from Kentucky, you were free when you got to Ohio. It is a Smithsonian's only museum outside of DC. Wow. And I couldn't, wow. I couldn't take it. I was crying, I think half the time. They've got an old slavery house. They even had, tables set up where how they ate. I was like, my people have to eat like this. It's just very heartbreaking because 
you could see it was so small. Everybody was smashed on one another. And the way that they had to eat together was just tiny and just not civilized at all. It was like, oh, my God. And so I was crying most of that, most of the time in the museum. Um, but a beautifully laid out museum. Mm. So that's the, that's the only thing that comes close. But I have not been to the South to do that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Just wondering with your abilities, what would come up and the things you could, the experiences you could actually write about would probably be really yeah. amazing, you know, to, to communicate the stories as a voice for the people who were working on the land. Mm, yeah. Wow. That'd be intense. It would be really intense. Yeah, it would be really intense for sure. Because I knew you were Jewish and you're obviously African-American. But So what was it like growing up as an African-American woman who's also Jewish? Growing up in Texas at the time, Houston's gotten much better. Not that it was horrible. Uh, the, The main thing people saw was the color of my skin. Like The Jewish part was a little less of an issue because we didn't go to synagogue that much. So it wasn't like big deal. So um, being black was sometimes not the funnest thing. (laughs) People would say like some shady things to you, not knowing what they were saying. And as a kid, you just kind of go along with it. You're like, "Um, that's not okay. But because I grew up in the suburbs as well, which was a whole other level because I was one of the few black people. But growing up in Texas and being Jewish, was not as hard technically as some ways as it was being in New York and being Jewish when I was actively going to synagogue and actively working. I worked in the, at an organization called the Multiracial Jewish Network, which was planning Jewish events around the country for Jews of color and multiracial Jewish families. That was harder for me, uh, I think, than anything. What made it difficult? What was going on in the community. Mm. And, um, also us trying to get money for the organization. It was interesting though. And I will say I would never trade that experience for the world. And that's around the time I wanted to be a rabbi. And then I spoke to some rabbis about their experience from people of color. And I just was like, okay, you all paid for four years of racism. No, thank you. And I would like to think that it has gotten better, but it's so interesting that I look and it doesn't seem like anything has gotten better. I was like, this, I haven't done that in years. How are you all in the same place? So it's, 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 it's really heartbreaking. But at the same time, um, I am seeing a couple of strides. I'm, I was part of a leadership cohort, and now they just have a full cohort of Jews of color. When I was in it, I think I was the only person of color. Now they have one specifically for Jews of color, which I think is brilliant. We need more Jews of color that are leaders in the community. So. I'm a little farmer removed from it now. I left it, left working in the Jewish world to do other things. I'm very glad because I love what I do now. But um, it was hard. It was very hard. But then it kept me on my spiritual path, which I love too. Yeah. I can marry people if I want to. I can officiate weddings if I want to. So it's like, it's great. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. And that's what's amazing, right, about our spiritual calling, our spiritual path, whatever it is. It, it, really, it really guides you. And you can live with an open heart and accept. Yeah. And live a place of gratitude and, and also forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. So, we can, so we can be free, essentially, right? And we, can, yeah. and we can have fun and help other people. And, and I think you do so many awesome things. Uh, you, you also give clairvoyant readings. You do, I right? Do. Mm-hmm. And do. And ta- yeah. do people come to you and say, because I, I find it so interesting that you have so many 
amazing aspects that you've brought into one culmination with the the clairvoyant aspect then you're doing your culinary expert but then you're also a wine expert so do you have people and what kind of felt like they were high organizations and companies were hiring you initially to come and do more your witchy stuff evolved into these other avenues and opened up all these other doors so do you have people saying coming and going okay i know you also read about you know you talk about wine do you know do you recommend a wine for me <laughs> do they come and ask you things like that too <laughs> yes actually they do and sometimes i'm right on the money with that like it's not something i really experiment so with but normally i'm pretty right on when i go i know what you drink or or what have you but yeah i have a mix of both uh i have people who are like oh i know that you do readings but like they'll tweet me or they'll dm me i get a lot of dms like i'm about to watch this what should i drink and i love it or it's vice versa like oh okay i need a reading <laughs> so it's i never know which one it's gonna be and i love it and i think that's why i love so much of what i do because i've managed to be able to mix it both yeah and uh yeah it's like it's so cool or like a witchy spirit people go have yeah. you tried this oh my gosh you have to try this i'm like okay <laughs> yeah yeah so, yeah it's fun it's total fun well <laughs> i i think uh is there anything you'd like to add because i think i we you should come back on another time and we should talk about witchy wine because i think that's oh, a God. really big long conversation and mm -hmm. uh and there's so many other aspects of sensuality of wine the sensuality of food um you know the 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 because you also have your courtesan the culinary courtesan uh aspect of of what you do as well that's another topic for discussion so there's a lot of awesomeness to you and is there anything you want to add uh i just want to tell everybody just keep living your life through your senses it's it's the thing that's going to lead you to your best life. I, that's all I can really recommend. I love doing it. And if you start doing it, if you don't know how, take baby steps. Take baby steps. Just have a good meal. Enjoy it. Sit back, relax, chill. It'll help you love your life so much more. Mm, beautiful. And now how can people find you? It's awitchandtheworld.com. Yep, that's great. Or if you just look under my name, yolandashoshana.com too. That leads you there. Okay, awesome. So you have two websites. That's yolandashoshana.com and that's spelled Y-O-L-A-N-D-A-S-H-O-S-H-A-N-A.com or awitchandtheworld.com and that's A-W-I-T-C-H-A-N-D-A-N-D-the-world.com. <laughs> love it awesome. awesome 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 well thank you so so much for chatting today that was great thank you this was wonderful thanks for having me mm, you're welcome you're welcome